0: A lot of people view the sleep as the wasted hours of the day. I know that's kind of a little bit of an old-fashioned now perspective, but, you know, you'll read old self-help books where people will be kind of like, oh, you know, if you only sleep four hours a day, you got another four hours of work or something like that. And that's just insanity.
1: (laughs) A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and a motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hey, welcome back to part two of my interview with Scott Young.
0: It's way easier to commit to five minutes than an hour. However, after you start doing it for five minutes, that can become 10 or 20 or more. That five minute rule is magic. Yeah, it's huge. And it's just because of that very reason that very often we think about it in this big, long, oh, this is three hours. I don't want to do three hours right now. But if you said, okay, I'm just going to do five minutes, you can do five minutes. The, the other thing is to recognize when you're going to have spikes of frustration and that feeling that you want to give up within the activity. Because sometimes you'll do it for 15 minutes and you'll get frustrated and then you'll give up. So that also happens after you've started, particularly when learning is in the earlier stages and maybe isn't as intrinsically rewarding. When, you, when you're when you having a conversation with someone, those first few times are rough. You know, that, that's gonna be hard. But when you can actually have a conversation and you're communicating, then it feels nice. You know, it doesn't happen as much, much. And so what I would recommend is that when you're doing it, is to recognize what are the trigger moments for those moments of frustration. So. In my own experience, a really good example of this is that when I was learning Mandarin Chinese, I did a lot of flashcards to improve my vocabulary. And when I would get one wrong, I would have this urge to give up. I would be like, ah, you know, this is awful. I don't want to do this anymore. I got one wrong and I'm feeling like I'm dumb and I'm not able to remember it. And like, how did I forget this? And, ah, this is so difficult. However, That feeling usually only lasts maybe about 15-20 seconds. It feels like it's this sort of perpetual state, but it really only about 15-20 seconds. And so I made a rule for myself that I could take a break whenever I wanted to, but only if the last card that I had done was correct. And it's funny because as soon as you get one correct, now you're all feeling, oh, actually I'm pretty smart. And I'm making progress and look at yeah. this. I'm just yeah. knocking the reviews down and I'm getting so much progress with my daily total of cards that I have to do in this kind of thing. And so I think about this a lot because very often people approach the kind of emotional barriers that they have to face as if it's a constant difficulty as if yeah. the effort involved is continuous over the entire amount of time they're doing it and that's not true at all most of the time you're probably in a fairly neutral state you know like you could be yeah. doing math problems and most of the time you're like okay you know copying this i'm writing this down doing this it's just these little pings of frustration these little pangs of you know maybe right after you finish one as well sometimes that's also the okay now it's time to give up because i've done one and you don't feel like starting a new question so if you can just be very sensitive to that and notice when do you give up, what is happening when you give up. It might yeah. even be an exercise for you. Just write down what was happening when you decided yeah. to take a break. Yeah. And if you can just smooth over those bumps, you will make much, much more progress.
1: Well, and I'm so I'm so glad you brought that up because one thing that I really appreciate about it, this book, and I didn't expect, but in res- in retrospect, <laughs> it makes so much sense, is about how much of it is about self-awareness.
0: Oh, it's about yes. paying yeah. attention
1: to those moments when that spike of resistance comes up and you want to quit and what was happening and how can you anticipate it and guard you know, like deal with it when it shows up. Like, and throughout the book, it was like, this book is, I think, as much about learning about ourselves as it is learning any topic we might tackle.
0: Well, I said in the beginning that I really feel that the brain is an organ of learning. And so when people think about learning, they often think about this narrowly scholastic task that this is something you do to get grades in school when really it's the thing you're doing every waking moment to be alive on this planet yeah. and so if you understand how learning works you kind of in some sense understand how you work and so yeah. I think that when we're you know good example of this because one of the principles is directness and so the mm-hmm. the kind of easy way of understanding directness is that if you want to get good at something you have to do that thing or do something that's substantially similar mm-hmm. you can't do something that is just purely passive, or something that is, you know, feels good, but is a totally substitute activity. And so I think this is a good message. And a lot of people have understood this. But I think the deeper psychological principle here, this idea of transfer appropriate processing that kind of underlies the research behind directness is actually really deep. And it comes up in lots of scenarios. So I was reading this book recently about anxiety. So you know, in some ways, this is as far away from, you know, learning in school as you could be. Well, maybe maybe not for some people, but in terms of just as a subject matter, learning theory and anxiety theory don't seem like that they would have much in common. And the book was talking about how when someone has a phobia or a fear, there's a process of exposure where you can teach the person to feel safe again so that they won't have anxiety in that particular scenario. This is used in therapy a lot. And one of the things I found really interesting reading this book is that they were talking about how context specific this this feeling of safety is. That if you learn to feel safe, but your therapist is there, then maybe you only feel safe when your therapist is there. And so it turns out that this idea of context specificity that underlies this idea of directness is really not so much about learning. It's really about how the brain works, that the brain works by being hyper-specific about things. And that actually maybe kind of makes sense because if you were activating things in the wrong situation, that wouldn't be very intelligent. So the way the brain works is to be quite specific, is to have, you know, fine tune the results to quite narrow situations. Now, this isn't always what we want. We want to have general skills and general application. But if you understand that this is how the brain works, then this not only impacts your learning, but it impacts things like your habits, it impacts things like your feelings of emotions, You you know, that you feel good because it's, you know, this scenario and it's activating this knowledge. And so I think, the more you can understand these principles, you can see them manifest in, you know, places that you wouldn't expect.
1: Yeah. Then, then you, yeah, you start seeing it everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Just about. Yeah. There's so many things I want to ask. But... <laughs> okay. I'm going to transition our conversation to the enlightening lightning round with your permission. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Please complete the following sentence with something mm. other than a box of chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> Life is like a...
0: Mmm, life is like a, so I have two answers to this, and one of them is going to be my easy answer, one of them is going to be my uh, not so easy answer, my easy answer to that would be, I would say life is like a game, and I think that if you can understand how to play, then you can do it well. The, The deeper answer to this, I think, and this is, I think, this is not my idea, this is an insight by Tyler Cowen, and he's talking about how, When we think about things like big things like life, because we're always living, right? So everything is in reference to our life and or things like the universe. So like the universe or the world is like X. And he was saying that his comment was that he thinks that those things are very difficult because we actually never have any reference point to something not like that. So I think my true answer would be like. Life is like all things because it is the only thing that we ever have a reference point to. So it is like a game. It's also not like a game. It's like, it's like a box of chocolates and it's also like a sandwich and it's also like (laughs) all sorts of things. And so I think that the opportunities for metaphors of thinking of things are so vast just because really everything that you've experienced has been in your life and it has been like that.
1: Right on. Thank you. Number two, what's something at which you wish you were better?
0: I think, hmm, this is a good question. I think one of the things that I would like to be better at is empathetic listening, where I can listen to someone and not just sort of understand what they're talking about, but really get the sense of how they're feeling about those things. And it's something that I think I'm not terrible at, but I also feel like it's something I've seen people who are incredibly good at that. Like, we'll have a conversation and then they'll come back and be like, didn't you notice that this person was like this? And I was like, oh. No, I didn't notice that at all. And so I would say empathetic listening would be something I'd like to be better at.
1: What do you think makes one a good empathetic listener?
0: So I think some of it is a general kind of skill of just social awareness that you have a sense of you have a much better model of how that person is acting and behaving. and So I think there are some people who are a little better at that kind of naturally than other people. And I think there's also people that are better at that because they have more practice. So, you know, people who are therapists, they learn to pick up on little things that other people might miss. But I think also part of it is just investing it in the kind of social interactions that you're in. And I certainly a lot of people are like this and I'm certainly one of these that often I'm in my own head when I'm interacting with other people. I'm thinking about what my own thoughts are on whatever's being discussed in my own conversation talking points and less on, you know, just really trying to understand what they're thinking about. It. And so I think that's also a question of, you know, you know, the perspective you adopt when you're listening. Yeah, I know.
1: Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say?
0: Oh man, you know, this is a really funny question for me because I generally don't wear any shirts with like sayings on them. Like it's it's, it's like a little nervous <laughs> tick that I have that so you're kind of describing something that's like mildly anxiety provoking. <laughs> because whenever I think about like wearing slogan shirts, I'm always like, ah, oh, I wish this shirt didn't have a slogan on it. If I had a slogan We can say tattoo, you can put it under the shirt. <laughs> yeah, tattoo, tattoo. Right? Yeah, if I had, had a tattoo, yeah. Just on my forehead, right? <laughs> Um, let me think about that a little more. Let me think about that a little more i'll pa- I'll pass on that particular question because I think okay. there's there's an answer to that I could give that would be sort of what would I want my personal slogan to be for sure. myself? But I feel when you wear a t- shirt, you're communicating to other people. so this is what you want other people to think when they see you. You're not usually <laughs> looking down at your own t-shirt sure. so if i'm if I'm thinking about a personal slogan, I think and this is a maybe a little macabre, but i I like to think that you know we're we're all going to die in the end. And I don't mean to say this in like kind of a negative light, but I think sometimes we we build up kind of the importance of things in our, in our life that we create a lot of anxiety about things and we get kind of Wrapped up in the little things that are there and we don't really recognize that it kind of doesn't matter We're all kind of going to the same place And so I think not to say that there's a there's an attitude You could take that where you would take everything gravely seriously But I think it's actually kind of the opposite that should be a little bit lighter about things because it is all going that direction But then again, I don't think I would wear that as a t-shirt around town. I don't think I'd make many <laughs> that way.
1: Fair enough Fair enough. Okay. I don't mean to cause you anxiety with these questions, Scott. No, no, no.
0: No, no, no. This is all all good.
1: Okay. Question number four. What book, other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? I imagine with the book club you have, this might be a hard one.
0: No, you know what? It's actually because I have a... well. I would say that one of my favorite books, and I'm saying it's one of my favorite books, also because I don't think most people I've said that it's one of my favorite books have read it. So I think that's always like when the when you're asking for book recommendations, I'm always going for the like, what's the book that this person's never heard of before, rather than saying you know, oh, I'm Getting Things Done, or you know, one of those books. Uh, one of my favorite books, and I think it just had a profound impact on me and shifted my thinking of who I am and and you know what what is this business of being alive was it's a book called the enigma of reason. And so it's ostensibly about a fairly narrow question, which is what is the kind of human function of reasoning about things. But to me, it had a kind of profound shift because it sort of kind of refocused my whole thought about what are all my thoughts and beliefs and all this kind of, you know, I'm a writer. I, what I do is I write and I talk about ideas and I argue for them and this kind of thing. And this whole perspective really shift own thoughts on that. So if anyone's interested in that I've written two at least two articles on it and I have a book club episode right I talk about it in in quite a bit of depth about all the little ramifications of it but yeah that book has, has definitely led to some deep thinking for me.
1: Right on. Thank you. I had not heard of that book until I read your book club oh, book, well, book club selections. Yeah. It's pretty oh, pr- Pretty interesting. So thank you for There were a number on there. I've read a lot of them but there were some I hadn't hadn't even heard of so yeah, it's pretty cool. Next question. So you travel a ton or you have traveled. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable?
0: Mm. You know, what's one thing that I think about, and again, it depends a little bit on the kind of trip that you want to take. I, I don't want to be one of those travel snobs that is like, oh, well, you have to do this. And if you're doing this, you're one of those stupid tourists. Like, I don't want to be one of those people. So this advice is take it or leave it. But it's an interesting idea that I thought about a lot, which is don't just travel, have some kind of project to go along with it. And I think the reason for that is that I think that just going to places and just seeing them and taking photos it does sort of lose its appeal after a certain point now it can be fun and if you're still really liking doing it then that's totally fine I don't think there's anything wrong with that but I find for myself I like to have a little project so obviously this language learning trip is like the ultimate in terms of having a big <laughs> project to go along with it but I think even little things like my wife and I when we went on our honeymoon uh, a year ago we went to Italy and we had a little project where we were gonna do sketching so instead of just you know we also took photos but instead of just taking photos you know, every once in a while I would sit down for like half an hour and like sketch where we were. And I found that that kind of oriented the trip a little differently. And it's caused me to, you know, slow down and experience it in a different way than I might have if my goal was just, you know, well, I'm just here. I should do that tourism. And it doesn't have to be like a, an intensive learning project either. I remember when I was in Beijing, one of the little goals I had was that there's lots of different regional cuisines in China. And one thing you'll know if you go to Beijing is that they have all of them, that it is sort of a mega center. So they have all the different types of cuisine. So I made a big list of about like, I was only there for two weeks, maybe 10 days. I made a list of about like 10 or 11 different like regional Chinese cuisines and it was like I'm gonna eat at one of these places and this was sort of like a mini goal like kind of like I was checking it off while I was traveling around and it also pushed me to go to different areas and eat in different places and see things that I might not have otherwise and so I think that's one of the things about traveling that can allow you to sort of I think real goal of travel is to try to shift your perspective to try to experience something new and to experience Mm -hmm. freshness and so if you do travel a lot, even travel becomes a routine. It becomes something yeah. that like, okay, snap a picture of this, snap a picture of that, check into the hotel. And I think what your goal should be is not just to see a new place, but to be a new kind of person in that place as well. And so I think little projects like this can help.
1: That's a great perspective. And it sounds to me like a very masculine perspective,
0: like have an outcome, get it done. <laughs> it, doesn't, <laughs> you know? it doesn't have to be a goal. It doesn't yeah. have to be like that. It could just be a approaching it, um, yeah. that is going to be a little different. So it doesn't have to be a mission. I yeah. would say that it could just be something that you want to, like how you want to approach it, you know, yeah. like just no. sort of, okay, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. So yeah. again, that, that that's can just for me. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Thank
1: you. Okay. So what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
0: Again, it's not something I've started specifically, but I think it's something that I now pay way more attention to than I used to which is viewing the sleep I get as the kind of foundation of my overall well-being. I think when a lot of people, when you talk about health, the first thing they think is diet, and then the second thing they think is exercise. And for a lot of people, I think particularly in America, sleep is like, doesn't even make the list. Like it's it's kind of way down there for things that when, if you were listing health-related outcomes. And I read a really interesting book uh, by Matthew Walker called um, Why We Sleep, And, you know, even though some of the things I think I'm not sure whether I'm fully convinced of all the findings in the book, but at the same time, I think it really underscored to me how important sleep is as a biological process how we often get too little and how it leads to tons of negative health outcomes and also, you know, performance and cognitive decline. And I think this is one of the most obvious ones because at least for me, I do think exercise is very important and the research bears that out. But if I skip exercising for a week, I can still work for the next day. If I skip sleeping normally for like two nights, I'm ruined mentally. So I think that to me just implies that there is a very strong, even short-term effect for sleep. And so little things like, you know, making sure that you have a routine of going to bed, making sure that you, you know, are comfortable making sure that you're not just like doing things and staying up late. That was something that I might've done when I was younger and not worried about it as much. But these days I think that sleep is something and the sleep habits that I have around it are something that I think are going to be very important in the long run. Yeah.
1: No, I love that. I love that answer. And the older I get, the more I share that perspective doesn't mean I follow it, but I listened to an interview with with Matthew Walker on Joe Rogan. Mm. Did you happen to yeah, hear yeah. that?
0: I saw some clips of that one. Yeah, yeah. But, it uh, blew my mind. Like from I, book. Yeah. I learned so many things
1: I didn't know. It was incredible. Mm. So, yeah, that yeah. resonates. And for sure. speaking
0: about learning, if we're talking because this is sort of the subject of my book, sleep is so important for learning. That it, it oh, turns wow. out that it has huge ramifications for memory consolidation. And so that's actually a really whole fascinating subtopic about like how the brain learns things, because obviously it has Mm. to make physical changes. And so there's protein transcription and there's, you know, when you're sleeping, a lot of the stuff that actually has to happen physiologically in order for your learning to set in, that's actually taking place. So a lot of people view the sleep as the wasted hours of the day. I know that's kind of a little bit of an old fashioned now perspective, but, you know, you'll read old self-help books where people will be kind of like, oh, you know. If you only sleep four hours a day, you got another four hours of work or something like that. And that's just insanity. (laughs) That is just the ultimate worst way to be productive. Yeah. What's, so I understand
1: you're based in British Columbia. Is that right?
0: Yes. uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Beautiful,
1: beautiful area. So I ask this question knowing that. (laughs) Mm, Okay. What's one thing you wish every American knew?
0: What's one thing I wish every American knew? It's very difficult to talk about generalities with America because I've met so many different types of Americans and it's such a large country that, you know, it's quite diverse. So often when people are referring to Americans, they're usually referring to some subset of Americans when they're talking about it. But I think one thing that kind of surprises me when I travel in the States is how many people uh, don't have a passport uh, and have never left America. Um, and I'm not like, again, obviously there's a lot of people who don't have the means to travel abroad. And so I'm not saying this just to be elitist and critical, but people who make more money than me, maybe don't have a passport or people who are, you know, quite well off professionally and they just have never left the country before just because of the culture and this kind of thing. And so I think one of the things I would say, if I could be, you know, kind of humble about it is that I think uh, this is true in all countries, but I think it's particularly true in a big country like the States, which which has such a dominating global media is that you can sometimes forget that the States is actually a fairly small part of the world. And that the things that seem super important to you and and the perspective that you have of them are actually quite minor in other places. There's this famous New Yorker cover, which is like the view of the New Yorker. And it's like Manhattan is really in in detail. And then as you go, the other parts of the States are like, like smaller detail and smaller detail. And then as you go even further on, It's, you know, just little squiggles for all the other countries and stuff to represent this kind of, you know, very local view of things. But I thought it was really funny because there was a magazine cover that did another take on that. And it was about Beijing and it was like trying to do Beijing of this. And I thought it was just the ultimate irony because in the picture of like what is the world according to Chinese people or to Beijingers of the world – America was in a lot of detail and Japan was nothing and I was saying if you ever go to China They have a lot more opinions about Japan than they do about the United States even with the kind of current uh, economic climate we're in right now and so I think that it's often the case that we have this egocentric view and we warp our own views to support the things that we're interested in. And this is true in all places in the world. But I think given how dominant American media is, it often takes going outside of the country to really see that, you know, actually a lot of people have their own issues that you've never heard about before. Yeah, and yeah. they're not particularly interested in what's going on uh, yeah. in maybe that you care about.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I, I can see that. And, and I can, if I put myself in maybe another american shoes yeah i think but scott if i get a passport i might be able to travel somewhere they don't speak english <laughs>
0: <laughs> well you know what i think and I, as i said i think the only difference canadians have in this is not some sort of fundamental difference but just that because of the dominance of american media we get a lot of american media right so we get a little bit of that kind of people talking about something and we're kind of a little bit outside of it and so I think that Canadians generally have a little bit more of a sense of being outside of things maybe than Americans do. But at the same time, I think, yeah, traveling to other countries and, and <clears throat> even it doesn't even have to involve travel. Like one of my real joys that, that I really like doing now is when I have, I have like little tutoring sessions to maintain the languages that I've learned. And I use this not really so much even as an opportunity to just practice the language, but you get to talk to someone in that country. And so you get to ask them kind of like, What's going on and what they're talking about is often very different from what you're interested in. So, yeah. you know, when Jair Bolsonaro won the Brazilian elections, I was talking to a Brazilian person about that and what their opinions are on that was and stuff. And I think this is something that it's not even just about what's happening, but also how they maybe are viewing it from a very different angle than, than you are and getting yeah. your media and this kind of thing. I right don't.
1: Scott, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about relationships and making them work?
0: Hmm. Relationships. I think that, hmm, the most important advice I've gotten for relationships. I think that one of the perspectives that has really helped me is that very often when you are upset about something or angry or or this kind of thing, and the other person is not seeing eye to eye, my, my rule of thumb is that when another person is having an argument with you, the other person is usually at least somewhat right. And it doesn't mean that they're 100% right, but they're usually at least somewhat right. And it's your job to kind of understand that rightness in the way that they're approaching things. Because, you know, even with my own wife or, or with my close friends or associates, often, you know, there'll be like an argument about something where it's kind of like, well, how, of course I'm in the right, of course this is the way that it has to be in this kind of thing. And then as you have more discussion with them and you start to see it from their perspective, you start to be like, oh, okay. I understand where you're coming from even though maybe I didn't see that before and so I think if you just start with the presumption that the person you're arguing with is usually at least let's say let's say at least 10% right let's not be too generous to start because that might be hard to do in the beginning but if you start with the idea that the person's at least 10% right and it's your job to figure out what that 10% is I think you're going to be a lot better off because you're going to be asking the kinds of questions that seek understanding rather than just blame and arguing yeah that's that's really wise
1: and then the final question in the enlightening lightning round what's the most important useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something that you're sure to always do or never do with Mm. it aside from compound interest
0: yeah well so it's kind of hard to even articulate because i don't even think this is a belief this is something that i inherited from my parents and i think this is something that I, i really view deep down is that uh a lot of people view money just as okay well it's it's a constraint for how much they can consume for things, whereas I've always really viewed money as freedom, that uh, having lots of extra money, the goal is not how do I spend to match my consumption, but how do I have enough money so that I can feel comfortable and I don't feel like constrained in my other, you know, life choices and things like this. And so it's funny to me when I meet people who don't have that viewpoint of things. So a a classic example of this is when a lot of people are buying a house, the logic that drives buying the house is how much of a mortgage can I get? And then once you figure out how much of a mortgage you get, you buy a house that is that big. And I don't want to say that, you know, for some people, even just buying a house that can barely fit them will be hard enough. So this isn't to say every every person, but I know some people recently who have, you know, they, they just live in an area where housing is cheap and they buy these gargantuan houses. And I can tell that was the motivation that they went to the bank, asked how big a mortgage they can get. And they're like, oh, that much? Okay, I'm going to get that big a house. And so to me, I've, I've never perceived on that basis I've never proceeded on the basis that what you spend actually has to like you're trying to like okay I've got this much money and let's try to optimize the spending and I think that if you can approach it that, that way and obviously you know having a healthy career and earning enough money to live is, is, a, is an essential component of that as well but I think if you can approach it that way you have a little bit more space for things you have space so that when things go wrong you have a backup I think a lot of people live sort of unwittingly with a very narrow margin of error <laughs> with their finances. And I've always felt like that margin of error is the thing that I'm trying to avoid because that's the thing that diminishes my quality of life. You know, it's not, it's not that, okay, well, I didn't spend up to the maximum, but that this little margin of error was so razor thin that something went wrong and all of a sudden I'm panicking because I don't have enough to make that car repair. I don't have enough to make this. If, if, if you are viewing it from that lens, I think it's really hard to, uh, to manage your money. Yeah,
1: I, as I was hearing you describe that, I was like isn't that just what everybody does? <laughs> like
0: you know they do the no, they go a shopping lot of people for don't, a you know. And a lot of people the 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 surprising thing too is that I found that a lot of people who um, you know, have less money are often more likely to approach it from that lens that like you are in objectively a riskier financial situation like setbacks could really damage you and you get an extra $200 or something like this and so it's like oh I got $200 okay let's let's go buy a skateboard or something like that I remember uh, I was in university and I was working on a project with a friend who was I think he was like 50 fifty or sixty thousand dollars in debt and he was kind of joking about it which in canada is quite a bit because our university doesn't cost as much in the states and he was kind of joking about how much he was in debt and then i remember we went on like some sort of project we were were out somewhere and he just decided he was going to buy a new skateboard right there and i just remember thinking not even that i like you know was going to have oh well that's crazy but just This person's model of the universe is so different from mine that like that was his idea of like, oh, I have some spare cash. Okay, let's spend this right now. And uh, a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people do that that way.
1: Yeah, many, many people for sure.
0: Okay, so I want to
1: say this here before I know we're nearing the end of our interview. But before we transition to the final portion about writing and creativity, I just want to share with you that I have made a kiva loan on your behalf as a way of saying thank you.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So to a a woman named Carmen Guadalupe, who is, I believe she's based in Ecuador and she's going to use this money to buy water, jugs of water to sell and thereby improve the quality of life for her and her family and people in her community. So yeah, it is an Ecuadorian place in a place called Manta. So that's, that's very good to hear. Thank you so much. So thank you. And, and the other thing I want to do here to make sure that I don't leave it until the end and forget it or try to squeeze it in is the invitation. If people want to learn more from you or if they want to connect with you, mm-hmm. obviously they can go buy your book on Amazon or at their local bookseller, yeah. but what would you have them do?
0: So I think visiting my website is probably the easiest. So scotthyoung.com, S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. I have like 1300 plus free articles i have my own little podcast where i have content that i've done i don't tend to do interviews but i have narration of my ideas and, and content and including some book reviews that we were talking about a little bit before when i was doing the book club and i also have you know videos and ebooks and all sorts of things so if you come to the website you can just click around and find some stuff that might be interesting to you if, you, if you've listened this far if you've listened if you listen to me this much and you're not totally sick of me then you might want to <laughs> dig in a little deeper yeah, Scott. I
1: understand you've written
0: more than two million words. Does that sound right? It's probably about right. Yeah, it sounds about right. I think. Yeah, because I, I'm, I'm I would estimate that articles on average of those are maybe about fifteen hundred words, and then I've also written some books and stuff. So yeah, about about two million sounds 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 about right. That's amazing.
1: And and so if I've got it right, you really began what is probably the profession, like a professional career, maybe it was a serious, like an avocation about 13 years ago. So right now we're in 2019. So 2000- yeah.
0: yeah, that was 2006, February, 2006 is when I started the blog. That's when I had the first post. And yeah, so I've, I've written a lot since then. I think it's, it's interesting for me because I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not too old, at least not yet right now, but in terms of doing this kind of work online, have like I've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, You're so, one of the OGs. Oh, you know, oh, uh, yeah yeah it's, it's funny now I'm kind of like when I'll talk to people who are kind of up-and-coming writers I sort of like oh is that what the kids are doing these days like that's sort of the <laughs> feeling I had because you know I got started at, at such an earlier stage of well yeah when when blogging was the was the thing and, and now I mean people are still writing online but often the word blogging is not thrown around as much.
1: Who has been influential to you in your career as a writer and why?
0: Oh, lots of people. So, very early on, it was Steve Pavlina. He was sort of my real inspiration for personal development and also entrepreneurship really early on i read a lot of his articles and it, it i liked it i i would say that i'm sort of i resonate with him a little bit less now cuz i think he's a little bit interested in different topics than i am but definitely his earlier writing about productivity and goal setting and these kinds of ideas were highly influential for me and i felt like a lot of my blog was really in homage to that other people that i found really influential cal Newport who is of course a good friend of mine as well i've you know, we've been friends probably going back, yeah, probably about 12 years now. And so I've gotten to see his career really uh, kind of take off as, a, as an author. And also because I've kind of, you know, he's been someone who has, has shared a lot of conversations with me about writing and about these ideas uh, related to learning as well. Other people have been really influential. Uh, Ramit Sethi has been someone I would call a sort of informally a mentor figure for me. For a number of years, I would say that you know, every time we have a little conversation, I'll tell them about you know some kind of oh, I'm struggling with this, and he'll often give me some kind of insight or question that he'll pose to me that oh, okay, and then I'll think about it differently from there. So he's also been someone who's been really influential to me. And I can think in terms of people that I don't know personally or people that I have not had the privilege of meeting yet, that have had, you know, a lot of influence on on my writing as well. Like I think about you know, I think about people like David Allen for getting things done. I think about people like Tyler Cowan, I think, is someone who has influenced me a lot with his approach to thinking and writing. Robin Hansen, I think about the blogger Scott Alexander is someone that I've admired greatly. So I've had a lot of these different influences over the years of thinking about what I like in writing and, and what I admire and respect and trying to inch towards it. Right on.
1: You're truly a student.
0: I, I try to be. I try yeah. to be, yeah. So if
1: somebody is now in the position, you know, somewhat like you were when you started out, that they know mm-hmm. that they, they want to write, they feel they have something they want to share, but they maybe don't have the confidence or they don't yet have the experience or the education or the relationships or so many of the things that it's easy to look at people who are already successful. What do you say to somebody who's, who's in that position?
0: Well, I think writing is really good. I think that be, the sort of the path that ended up working out for me, which is becoming kind of a professional writer, that is probably beneficial to the minority. I think that most people are probably not well positioned to be professional writers. And I don't want to say that that to discourage anyone who's serious about it. If you're serious about it, then you can do that. But at the same time, I think that The point that I like to convey is that knowing how to write and having a platform that you write to, I think is enormously beneficial, even if that's never your job, that it can often be a way of communicating your ideas, it's a way of meeting peers and mentors, it's a way of, it's a way of, it it kind of acts a little bit as your resume, it acts as a way of talking about it, so I've met a lot of people that their careers are not writers, they they are entrepreneurs, or they are, you know, investors, or they're programmers, or they're what have you. But their writing uh, just becomes such a powerful tool for them to encounter other opportunities and meet people who will help them grow and develop. And so I think that writing is a really fundamental skill. I think that writing is often a way of understanding your ideas better as well. You know, we were talking about it a little bit before, but I think that it's a big difference between having ideas or thinking you have ideas and being able to write persuasive and cogent essays about it. I often feel this way that I have this hodgepodge of ideas and it's only when I sit down to write that I really understand what I think about it and what I know about it. And so I think for a lot of people, I would encourage them to get into writing, even if they're not sure that they want to be quote unquote writers, that they just want to think better and explore ideas. How do you You talk about that hodgepodge of ideas that, you know, that strikes
1: a chord with me. I suspect people Mm -hmm. listening, you know, and people who are interested in in this part of the creative and writing process, probably some part of that resonates with them as well. Will you tell us a bit about how do you capture those? How do you organize them? How do you refine them? How do you prioritize them? How do you editorially schedule them out?
0: You know, what's your process? That's difficult. I, I would say that I'm still working on my process. So this is a work in process, so to speak, of my process, because I've, I recognize deficits in my own process that I would like to remedy things that I'm trying to improve. And again, so for me, like the perpetual student, I'm trying to not say that this is the right way to do it, but saying this is the way I've gotten to so far. Well, 2 million words, something's working. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, and I'm producing, I think for me. So I would say that my I'll talk about my approach for writing an article, because I think an article is my typical unit of production. I have written books before, but I would say even the book that I just recently wrote this ultra learning was a very different process than the previous ebooks that I'd written, which were a little bit more like the way that I would write a long article. So the way that I approach an article is usually I have some idea. And for me, the idea is usually abstract. It usually comes from an example, but it's not necessarily the example that I wanna use in the post. But it will usually be something it will be often often in the form of a question, and it'll be something that I'll think is interesting. So I'll give a few examples of some ideas that were like, this was the kernel of it. So a post I wrote recently called, you know, are you walking over? I forget exactly the title. Something like, are there dollar bills lying on the sidewalk or something like this. Remember the the note I took when I was interested in this idea was about the question of how much low hanging fruit there is. So originally it was framed in terms of low hanging fruit. But I, I was thinking about this idea because I was noticing people talking and having conversations. And they tended to split into two camps that there's one camp that views the world primarily through the lens of you know, things work. And if there's an opportunity, someone would already taken it. And, And this kind of way of, I'll call it kind of an efficient mindset that like, you know, if there's some low hanging fruit, someone's picked it already. And then there's another mindset that the world is full of opportunities and people are lazy and they don't pick them up and they're obvious and you just have to think about them. And so I was sort of reflecting on that kind of idea. And so this was sort of the initial kernel of the idea. Now it's not enough for a post. Like I can't actually... I don't think it was good enough to write about. I could have maybe just written something down, but it would just be my opinion, and it wouldn't. I don't think it would have had uh, uh, been that compelling. And so I was sort of just hanging on to this idea and waiting and trying to gather other things. And then I think there were two ideas that sort of I encountered in around the same time that made me think that this idea might be ready to put together in a post. So one of them was the the joke which I opened with, which is you know, the the joke and the reason I called it $100 bills is there's a joke that an economist is walking down the street and he sees in a $100 bill on the ground and he decides to walk on right on by because if it had been a real $100 bill, someone would have picked it up already. And so this is kind of a joke. And and I liked that it it, because the joke gave me an intro. And so uh, the intros are often very hard and they're often not quite related to my main idea that the intro is often the The how do you get someone who does not care about this abstract question, you give them something to hook their attention. And so I like things like jokes or I like things that are little anecdotes or little things that are kind of like you can understand that on your own and then you can get into a deeper, more abstract point. So when I had that, I knew that, okay, I might have the opening and now the kind of the main idea that I want to hit. And then I found this article written by Jason Crawford about the history of the bicycle. And it was all about how. Why wasn't the bicycle invented in like 1400? Yeah. Because they had all the pieces. Like, I mean, they had clockwork engines and stuff back then. Why didn't they have a bicycle? It would have been really useful. And so he goes into a lot of depth in that article about why it didn't happen. But the basic idea is that inventing a bicycle is hard. It involves a lot of independent design decisions that you have to get right in order to get it there. And so once I had that, I knew that I kind of had like a meatier example to follow up on this. So it wasn't just me pontificating about low-hanging fruit. I had like a clear example. And so in that sense, I kind of judged that I was close enough to having a piece that I sort of went for it. Sometimes I don't need those external research pieces. So, you know, I'm thinking about an article I wrote a little while ago where the idea was that if you categorize different sort of approaches to self-improvement that they can kind of fit into one of three different categories that one of them are approaches that focus on hitting the minimum so how do you prevent so how do you make sure that you do at least the minimum all the time and then there's ones that are average approaches where you're trying to hit some level of output even though sometimes you go a bit below sometimes you go a little bit above and then there are what i could call maximum targeting where you are trying to hit some extreme result but you know it's not sustainable in the long term and so I thought that was really interesting because I don't know, I, for me, I tend to be more of a synthesizer than a debater. So I like to see, Oh, there's three different people that all disagree. What's the re- what's the way in which they're all right. That's the way that I like mm-hmm. to approach thinking about things. And so at the time there were a lot of people talking about, you know, and in particular, my friend, James clear was talking a lot about habits. And so he was taking a very minimum targeting approach. He was taking the whole idea that people spend too much on trying to do maximum targeting. They try to spend too much trying to reach these extreme heroic outcomes and they need to focus on just not ever missing a day at the gym, that kind of thing. And so for me, it was kind of the thinking of like, what's the logic behind that? Like what is, what is the reason, what is the world in which that's right? And what is the reason why some people disagree or why people might not pursue it that way? And so that was kind of the starting point for discussing that. And so I didn't have as much external research, but I could kind of pull together some different threads. And so Anyways, those are, those are two articles I've written yeah. and kind of how I thought about them when I was writing them.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that because I think I think it can be – I mean it's interesting for me and, and I suspect it's interesting for people listening to hear, you know, really that that creative process is – you know, it is a process. Yeah. You, you know, and like when I read Creativity, Inc., you know, and I was so impressed by how Pixar has been able to take what is a very complex, you know, lengthy and labor-intensive many – people involved process Mm -hmm. and replicate it like consistently produce great output and whether we're doing it on our own or as a team there is there are things we can do but when you when you approach an article like this how
0: often how often do you publish something and how long
1: how long is it and how do you write to
0: to get it done so i vary i would say right now i'm doing a once a week article and that has been sort of my habit for a number of years in a period of about 12 months ending kind of in the summertime when the book came out, I'd been doing five articles a week. And so I did that more as an experiment. And then I felt like the experiment was kind of, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. It was a little bit harder to sustain. I was sort of nearing the end. I was getting a little bit bogged down trying to keep up that writing pace. And I think there are weaknesses to trying to write that much because... The advantage is that you just get a lot of stuff out. So I would have I would not say that the problem is ideas. Like I usually have enough ideas that I could write probably I could probably if I if time wasn't an issue of actually producing the articles, I think I probably could easily write ten articles a week or something. I don't think the ideas are really the issue. I think it's more making a good article requires some effort. And so sometimes you'll start writing and and you'll, you'll be sort of struggling to put things together. And I think I've also been leaning now towards more of an incubator approach. So try not to pull the trigger too early and writing about it. So like the low hanging fruit article, I could have written it right then and just sort of mused about it and then written a few examples but i wouldn't have had the cool bicycle store and i wouldn't have had the so so that was sort of like i liked those pieces and that they came in in the final one but if i had just written about it i might have wasted it because i would have felt like i already covered that topic i don't want to do the same idea again just with some new ideas so sometimes that can be the the trade-off of writing on a regular schedule is that you because you have to publish you sometimes publish things maybe before they've reached their ideal maturity but yeah. if at the same time you wait for everything to reach its ideal maturity it starts to get rotten right so you have to yeah. kind of find yeah. that right freshness zone where you're posting things that are ripe but but not starting to spoil yeah that that makes sense how do you
1: As as like a practical matter, how do you Mm -hmm. capture? Do you Evernote? Do you Trello? Do you have... These
0: days I'm doing Evernote. I got to say like a lot of my writing habits, and this is one of the things that I'm trying to improve in my process is based on my own memory. And that has (laughs) issues because not so much because I can't think of things, but because then I can't find the source. And I find this is particularly bad for certain things like Twitter, I can never find things that I I was like, oh yeah, someone was saying this on Twitter and it would be really good because it's this good reference. And then like, good luck finding that again. Like it's, if you found it once, you can never find it again. And so for those things, you know, if it's, if it was longer than like a week ago, you're you're never going to find it. So those things I'm really trying to get a lot better about references. And I also think that that was a, a weakness even in writing my book is that doing things on memory. I think that can lead to worse research because you maybe remember things in a slightly different way than you actually read them. Yeah. And so that kind of if you if you're not as careful about that, then that can be a little bit more difficult. And so Writing this book, you know, citing everything and making sure everything was kosher that way was, you know, that was a bit of a challenge for me just because I would read something and be like, oh yeah, I remember this, but the way I've remembered it is not exactly how it happened. And then that right. leads to you, you know, doing some journalistic malpractice yeah. if you're not careful, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, you know, something I wonder if you do that I had never heard of, even
1: mm-hmm. though I was an English major and I've, I've loved reading and writing for my whole life until I read an
0: article that Ryan
1: Holiday wrote. Recently yeah, recently about a commonplace
0: book. Oh yeah, yeah. I will. I so there's a related idea to that called the Zettelkasten system, which is like a system for like keeping your notes and stuff. So I've been experimenting with that. It's still a little early for me to like say what I'm gonna do with it. Right now, I'm doing Evernote. But the thing that I feel is like the real, the real kind of cutting edge that I want to be able to get from that is that a lot of note taking systems are just a dump that you're just wow. kind of dumping stuff in a location. But then you still need to know that it's in there to retrieve it later. So you're really just facilitating searching. You're not really facilitating insight. And what I'd like to have is a system that, and this is why the Zettelkasten system is kind of popular. So for people who are interested in that, I highly recommend a book by Zenke Ahrens called How to Take Smart Notes. So if you Google How to Take Smart Notes, you'll find him. And a really good book because he talks about this system, which was built by this German sociologist and it was basically the system of index cards but the idea and the difference between just taking notes normally was that by you were synthesizing so it was kind of like an intermediate product between taking just notes of what you're finding and turning them into papers or articles that you want to publish and so what he would do is just sort of as he finds things he would sort of say okay how does this relate to the threads that I'm currently working on and then integrated into those threads as it was happening. Now I haven't figured out the right workflow for that yet because even the ones I've tried a little bit with it, they they tend to get weighed down by their weight. Yeah. That there's too yeah. much stuff and you still then you have the problem you can't find things again. So I'm trying to figure out where I want to go with it. For a little while, I was doing a system where I was doing kind of like article stubs. So this this hundred dollar article was one of those examples where I had made a stub that okay, I'm gonna I wanna talk about low-hanging fruit. And then I just listed all the things that I could think of right now that I could include in it. But then I just let it incubate. And then when I found some more things, I put them in there. And then when there was like, okay, there's enough. I can write this into an article. But the problem with that is that then once you publish the article, that thread is kind of dead. And so what you'd really like ideally is for it to continue discussion so you can further it rather than, okay, well, that idea is done. Let's go to a new one. And I think that's how you really get depth. So I'm still working on this process. I haven't really figured it out. Okay. I feel better about myself now. So thank yeah. you. <laughs> if you can
1: produce the work you're doing with that. Okay. So last question. Mm-hmm. So the last question, and then I want to ask if you have encouragement for people listening, but, but the last question is how do you want the world to be different because of your writing and because
0: you lived? So I think a theme in my thinking about things is that I'm very focused on individual change as opposed to global change. And I feel that because I think a lot of people approach it the opposite, that they want to change society, but they don't really want to change themselves. And so the way I've always approached it has been from take the world as a given. And then how do we succeed and survive in it? And I don't want to say that, you know, this means a kind of, pessimism or futility about it. But rather I think if there is gonna be any change in the world, it's gonna have to emanate from within. And so people who kind of put the put it the other way, that like, well, we need to change society, I, I kind of feel like that's a little bit putting the cart before the horse. At least for some situations. I don't I don't want to discount people who are, you know, arguing for real social change. But at the same time, I think like for myself, when I'm talking about learning, for instance Therefore, my focus was a lot more on how can we be better learners? How can we achieve what we want to achieve with learning rather than just education reform? And so I think that that's sort of a, a different perspective on it. And so for me, when I think about my writing, I think about it from that perspective, that what I would really like is for someone to read my book at, or or any of my other writing and say to themselves, "Oh, you know what? That's cool. I'm going to do a project. I'm going to change kind of my life, and I'm going to try to do something different." And I've heard from people that have done things like that before, and so I think that's really where I want to have my impact. And you know what? If this results in some, you know, changes that are bigger or more macroscopic, that would be great. But I think for me, I I think about I think about it in terms of paying it forward because. I feel like there's been a lot of people who have given me advice and wisdom that has impacted my personal life immensely, that has made me a better human being. And so I want to give people the opportunity to experience that themselves in whatever way I can. That's awesome. Well, you're doing
1: it. You did it well, for me. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So any final, I don't want to reduce our entire conversation to a soundbite or anything <laughs> like that, but is there, yeah. is there like a final Send-off for piece of encouragement that you would give to somebody who's involved in this creative endeavor trying to serve others Enjoy themselves and earn a living all at once. Yeah,
0: yeah, so Again, as we've been talking for a while So it's kind of hard to put a final touchstone on everything that we've discussed but I do think that if you approach your life from the lens of learning so if you approach it as that your problems in life are learning projects. If you approach it so that the things that frustrate you and stress you out are things that you can understand, that there are systems at work. I think when you approach life from that perspective, it is, it unlocks some things that are a little bit harder to do from other perspectives so there's lots of different perspectives people suggest for taking taking on things in life but i think if you treat a lot of things that maybe don't seem like learning projects as if they were a learning project i think you often approach it with more humility with more curiosity and indeed with more likelihood of you know proving yourself wrong which i think we probably need more of in the world these days and so i think if you can approach your life from that angle, you'll make more progress than if you just see it as an issue of hustle or grind or or even just about having the right beliefs and faith and confidence in yourself. I think if you open yourself up to curiosity you'll you'll find a lot more interesting things than you had encountered before yeah and
1: and probably have a lot more fun than you would otherwise. I would hope so too, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you, Scott. You've been so generous with your time and your wisdom and your experience. I'm I'm really grateful to you and I, and I thank you for me and on behalf of everybody who's listening.
0: No, oh, thank you so much for having me.
1: Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work,